And as you're taking your seats, the kids, they are dismissed to their classes, and you can turn to Genesis chapter 8. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 19. So before we go to the, uh, the, the Lord in prayer, before we even start the message, um, every so often I like to, I would say, have a little bit of a family conversation um, as a church body. Uh, first one is more of an announcement for me, and then uh, moving on from that, uh, I've been called a lot of things in this world. Some I can repeat, some things I can't repeat, depending on how angry the person was at me. Uh, but there's a, a new title, by God's grace, that I've uh, will be able to be called. Um, my daughter is uh, pregnant, Hannah, and so you can add grandpa to the list. So um, we're really excited about that. Uh, and so you can be praying for her uh, during this time too with some of her uh, complications of the wonderful genetics that God gave her with her diabetes and things like that. So be praying for her in that time. We're really excited about it. And uh, basically, that's all I have to say about that. So um, that being said, if you now if you can pay attention to what was needs to be said in the church world here, there's a couple of uh, things. By God's grace, um, some of you may may feel longer than this, but my family and I have been here for three years. Some of you may feel like it's been longer than that, positive or negatively. Uh, but as we start year four, um, there's some things that, by God's grace, I have strongly desired to teach. But um, one of the things I've learned, I think I've learned is that sometimes when you come into a, a place, people come in guns ablaze and ready to go, and they want to change everything and do whatever until you actually go, do you even know the people you're talking to? And I, by God's grace, I think I know the flock well enough as we take these principles that I believe are very important for us as a church body to embrace as we move forward. And so there's going to be some very, I would call them crucial and key sermons or teaching series that I would... When I say strongly encourage you to be at, I'm saying that in every word and every meaning of the word strongly encourage you to be at. So one of them is coming up December 31st, which is New Year's Eve, to help you remember that. Um, that's a Sunday, and we're, I'm going to be preaching a sermon out of Acts 2.42, and I'm calling it the four priorities of a faithful church, of what we're calling to. Because when the Lord called me here to minister... I truly believe that calling is one that um, I should leave the church here one day, feet first through the door type of deal. Like, I'm planning on dying here, and I'm also planning on you dying with me here type of deal. So, like, my desire is to not take us somewhere that I'm going by myself. It's to do this together as a family. And so, I really believe this sermon that we're going to be walking through that day is incredibly important for us. I've been working on it for quite some time because I really believe that in these, in that verse alone itself, there are some things that by God's grace, we need to not neglect because we will only neglect them to our own peril. That being said, come mid-February though, um, in Sunday school, and uh, for those of you who may not know, Sunday school starts at nine o'clock and from nine to 10 o'clock, we're going to be working through a, I would call it a very foundational series, and the series is called Family Ministry. What is family ministry? The what of it and the how of it. And as we walk through that, one of the major key principles is teaching us how to be the family of God, then also what is God called the family to. 
And we're going to be walking through that as a church because I truly believe, as, as your pastor, that we are at war with the world around us. The world is at war with biblical ways of thinking, and we are at war with that as well. That we are not conformed to the thinking of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And it impacts every single thing we do. In Sunday school today, I gave a little bit of that taste of even as we walk through the different understandings of the word love. The Greco-Roman myth of love versus the biblical understanding of love and all of those things that can cause us to wrestle and struggle with these things. And so if you want to know and you say to yourself, so what, what are the things that CBC is going to be rallying around and focusing on in the time that Tim is here? Well, we're trying to start to lay that out. And so my prayer is that you walk in this journey with us together and that you come, be willing to ask questions, be willing to talk through what does this look like as a church body. So I'm really excited about it. Hopefully I convince you to be excited about it. Um, and so um, I would encourage you, as uh, my one, um, one of my uh, mentors said to me one time, this is a 10 to 20 year journey. So we have, we're starting, we're year four that hasn't started yet. So here we go and we'll walk alongside this together. So I'm excited about it, but it's some key opportunities for us to, for, for you to rally around what I believe God has called us to be as a church. So that being said, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you that it is by your grace we stand. As we just proclaimed, again, the Advent season, and the Advent season to remind us that we need to be ready for your coming. And so, Dear Holy Father, help us as we open your word today. May we be like the wise man who looks in the mirror, sees what needs to be changed, and then by your Spirit walks in obedience. So, dearly, Father, help us to see what your Word has to say, and then to live obedient lives. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So, we're entering a presidential election year, and please do not moan. But as we enter that year, there will be political ad after political ad after political ad on TV. You will hear in these political ads that from one side or the other, that if you elect my opponent, you're all going to die. And if you don't vote for me, voting for me is going to bring you health, wealth, and prosperity. But if you vote for the other person, it's going to bring you death, misery, and sorrow. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sit on. Not only will we have political ad after ad after ad after ad, we will also have many promises being made by these political people. Many of them, if they actually understood the job they were going to, they would understand they can't even keep that promise because that's not even their role in the three systems of government. But they will make promise after promise after promise. And sadly, many will believe that these politicians can do everything they've said they will place their hope in their man, or lowercase g, God-like figure, for the saving of our nation. And so before you're tempted to blindly follow the next Pied Piper, and if you don't know the story of Pied Piper, you can read it this afternoon, let, let me remind you of three famous promises that have been made by past presidents. 1916. Woodrow Wilson, in running for president, his whole campaign slogan was this, he will keep us out of war. He was the first president to take us into World War I. 1928, Herbert Hoover promised 
a chicken in every pot and a car in every driveway. And eight months later, the Great Depression hit. One in my lifetime, George H.W. Bush, famous line, read my lips, no new taxes. Yet he signed a tax bill in his first and only term in office. And as I listed these, we could go on and on and on and on. It is like almost everything they promise is probably going to be the exact opposite is going to happen with these elected officials. And so when we think about the idea of promises, when we think about the idea of you said this, are you going to actually do it, all right? When we think of these things, I think of as, as it was a comical situation one time that happened. We were at this parenting uh, thing with my dad, and my brothers are sitting at this parenting class, and the guy that's teaching the parenting class says to the dads, Dad, you will promise things to your kids all the time and fail them. And I can guarantee you, if you ask them, what have you promised? And have not done, they will tell you. And I'm sitting there going, how does this guy know, right? And so my dad turns and says, what have I promised you boys that we haven't done? And each one of us said, bowling. And he's like, really? <laughs> and we were like, yeah, you promised we were going to go bowling one time. But each one of us remembered that dad had promised we were going to go bowling. And my dad was like, and actually I could see like the conviction hitting him. I was like, guess what we're going to do as soon as we can? Go bowling. We're like, but... I don't I mean, we weren't a bowling family. We just, Dad had said we're going to go bowling one time, and even to this day we joke about it as he had promised, but we remembered it, and it's not like we brought it up, but we remembered it. Now, parents, if you want to have a, a nightmare, don't go around saying to your kids, what if I promised and failed to deliver, because they will for sure tell you, but um, I would just say, be careful what you promise. With that in mind, look at Genesis 8, verses 1 through 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were within the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided, the fountains of the deep, and the windows of heaven were closed. And the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abided. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, on the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, and the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and look, and behold, the, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark.
It's interesting here. Point number one is going to be literally the first, basically, three or four words of verse one. Notice what we see here in the beginning of this chapter eight. But God remembered Noah. What we need to do is remember, put ourselves back in. The storm is raging, right? The sea is prevailing. The waters are prevailing. And it seems that every chaos is running around us. And all of a sudden, you get a pause in the text of this storm and the the wind and the waves and everything else going on. And it says, but God remembered Noah. It's interesting here. This phrase in the Hebrew means a remembrance to do something, something that you previously said. It's interesting here, this remembrance is also, we would call it covenantal language. It's not a recalling of facts. It's a recalling of the covenant that God made with Noah. Go back to Genesis 6.18. And in 6.18, this is what God says to Noah. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your wives and your sons' wives with you. And he literally says, you're going to go into the ark, you're going to be saved during this time. And so when it says God remembered Noah, this is not a remembering of facts. It wasn't as if God was so focused on what's going on with the flood that he's like, oh, oh yeah, that's right, I remembered Noah. What it is, is God is saying, because I made a promise, this promise is something that I made, and I will remember and keep my promise. This is the same concept. When a husband and wife stay together through incredibly hard times, We could say, while they were wrestling through those very drudgering times of life, we would say they both remembered their promise. It wasn't as if that they forgot, oh, for better or for worse, I forgot saying that. It literally means they remembered what they said, and they're going to stick with it no matter what. It's interesting here that God does not forget His promises. God is not like us. God is not one that says, oh, I forgot what was going on there. Oh, I better get back to it. No, God is the one who he he promised and he's faithful to do what he said he would do. That is why I don't look to my dad for my salvation, because he couldn't even remember that he said we were going bowling. I don't look to man. We look to God who not only can say what he says, but has the ability to do what he has promised. It's interesting. God had promised to destroy and God had promised to save. And it's interesting here, he even goes, you and your family and the animals will be saved. God cannot forget, nor is it in his character to even be able to forget what he has said. We make comments in our world, we say to err is human, right? And I would also say to err is to even forget that you're human, right? We forget all the time. We say things, and even sometimes we say, I promise that's going to happen, but what do we know? If I die on the way to it, I have no guarantee that even my promise that I said I was going to promise is going to happen. But God who cannot die is the one who can only hold his promises. Now, what I'd like to do, though, I'd like to see how the people of God function in light of the promise-making, promise-keeping God. So we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, and then we'll go to Hebrews. In Romans chapter 4... Verses, we're going to go 20 and 21. Actually, I decided just for fun, we're going to start at verse 19. So this is the promise that God is going to make to Abraham that you're going to have a kid. All right? And Sarah, literally, when she hears it, laughs like, like that's going to happen, right? But what has God promised? You're going to have a kid. 
What does Abraham and Sarah try to do? Let's do it another way. And God says, no, it's not Ishmael. Sarah, you're going to have a kid, all right? So then we get here into Romans talking about that. Verse 19, he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body. This is he, meaning Abraham. And I love how Paul writes here. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. All right, so what are we saying about Abraham's body and able to conceive a child? I mean, like, you would have said, you could have said that a little kinder, you know. Not only is it you pass child-rearing lives, you're basically as good as dead. Things are not working in your favor here. Since he was about 100 years old. So not only is Abraham way past the, the time of, of even being able to have children, notice what Sarah's got. A barren womb. And it says, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Not distrusting made him waver concerning the promise of God. But what did he do? He grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so what does the walk of Abraham look like? God says this is going to happen. Abraham looks and says, I'm as good as dead. And not only that, I have a wife who has never conceived. And she's barren. And all earthly speaking, we would have said, not happening. But God is able to make dead things live, and he's able to make dead wombs conceive. He's able to bring from what we would say impossible, what those who have faith in God are able to see, that even though he goes, this is not going to happen, he said, by faith, we see this taking place. His faith in God did not waver. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll look at other areas as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why are we able to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering? For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to serve one another up to love and good deeds. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. So when I'm sitting here and one of you is wrestling through a hard time, I'm not giving you Tim's hope. I'm not going to give you Tim's peace, nor am I going to give you Tim's joy. I point you to Christ who is able to do what only he can do. That is why when we go through situations, even when we pray, what we're saying in our prayer is, I can't do it, I need you. Prayer is incredibly humbling. Well, I would argue one of the reasons why we don't like to pray. Because prayer reminds you, you can't do it. Only He can. And these are the moments where in our own lives we can sit here and we go, oh, we love to say, God, I've got this and let me try it. But one of the beautiful things about the story of Noah and the ark is, Noah is not directing the ship with a Motor. He is literally at the hands of Almighty God as the world is literally being turned upside down. God is the one who is faithful, moving him where he needs to be to hold his promise that he will be the one that protects. Hebrews chapter 11 as well. I don't know why I went all the way back to Genesis, but Hebrews 11, hang with me here, Eleven thirteen. Speaking of all of those who came before, notice even this. Speaking of those who had gone before in their faith in God, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. And so what we see is the people of God, even though you go, he, what he has promised that was going to take place, even though it may not have happened in their life, they were able to see it from afar. They looked and see it from afar. That's why the beauty of, of Christmas is all the Old Testament saints are going, who is this one that's going to crush the serpent's head? 
And they would get pictures of it, but not a complete picture of it. And until one day, John the Baptist stands up and he says, this is the one that we've been all waiting for. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we're drawn to in our lives. Because he who promised is faithful to carry it out. Notice even more in the text here. Not only has God remembered Noah, but notice what it says. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. The waters recede and the winds of rescue come. Interesting there. God, the creator, the sustainer of all things. God, the one who is in sovereign control over all things, while it seems, and we went through this in chapter 7, 11, through, actually 17 to the end, how many times the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed, and what does it seem, earthly speaking? Who's winning? The waters. They're prevailing, they're prevailing, they're prevailing, but the sovereign creator of the whole world stands up and says, a wind is coming and it's going to blow. He sends the wind... And notice in verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. They did not close themselves. Who closes them? God. He says, this is enough. No more. What a beautiful picture of resting in the hands of God. When God calls this wind to blow, this, we wouldn't even call it a divine wind that he sends on the earth. What is this wind doing? This wind is blowing. And as the wind blows across the water, it helps in evaporation. Why? Because man is not to live on the water. What does man need? The wind to blow off the water for the dry land to come about. Because not only has God protected them, now God is establishing where they're going to live. So humanity and animals have a place to live. This wind comes, directed by God. And I pray, as people who love the Word of God and have read it, these things in your mind should automatically take you to another story. Where one day God's people are standing on the Red Sea, and it seems that destruction is coming by the Egyptian army. And as they're standing there, what does God do? He doesn't say to the Israelites, well, good luck, you rebellious people. You know, you're going to get what's coming to them. What does he do? Out of his own grace, he brings an amazing wind, and that wind blows across the water, parting the Red Sea. And so the Israelites go from literally slavery to victory with him. I would encourage you, it's interesting, not only this, but I would encourage you to study even the, the concept of wind and as it blows, because you know what part of the Trinity is also described as the wind. Jesus, when he was in Nicodemus, he said, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It comes and it goes, and as it blows on it, it's here for a moment and is gone. Not in a mysterious way, but in a way that the wind of God, when it comes, given to us by God, it is something that we should remind ourselves of, the beauty of God, and when he acts he acts beautifully and correctly. It's interesting here, though. While all this wind is blowing, while all of the earth around him is starting to cease, and the water is starting to recede from the earth, what we're going to see is, because so you have 40 minutes, right? Sorry, not 40 minutes, 40 days of rain. You have the water pouring out, and you have all this disaster going, right? And in most of our minds, when we grew up, we would go, how long did the flood last? And we would go, 40 days and 40 nights. And you would go, no, that's how long the rain lasted. Because when it's done raining, guess who's still in the ark? Noah. And if you start doing the math, the, the rain and the storm cease. Two months happen, so that's 60 days, before even the mountains are visible. 
Not only that, you have four more months before you even find land and the ark rests on the Mount Ararat. And they will spend a whole year in the ark. One of the things I think God is teaching Noah is incredibly patience upon God's timing. Because he destroys, but now God is reestablishing and God does it on God's time. Do any of us wrestle with God's timing? I mean, I don't know about you, but I can barely last eight hours in a car with my family, let alone in a boat with everything else going on there. And again, what do we see? God not only blowing the water away, God, as I said before, he closed the fountains of the deep. He is now creating a world for Noah and his family and the animals to thrive. God is the one doing it. Not Noah. Noah's literally, if you want to call it, along for the ride. God is the actor here. God shuts off the water. And when all of these things happen, I think sometimes we can, we can become so, if you want to call it, almost, um, edu- uh, I would call it, we take Scripture and we flatten it instead of realizing that there were smells and there were things going on around us. All right? If you've ever been, I love this in the summertime, when you have one of those quick-passing showers, right? And when the shower passes, very quickly you smell ozone. You know, the smell of it after it rains. And you smell it, and it smells fresh, and it smells beautiful in those things. And we have this going on, but there's another part we also forget at times. What has taken place on earth right now? Massive death. You know what also is floating around? Dead animals. And you could you study this. They actually say that, you know, when any of these tsunami things come in and the upheaval that happens and the floating levels of debris are going on, and I'm going to, you'll see my argument in a middle why I believe this is going on. You have the beauty of the clean, cleanliness, and you also have death at the same time. And I'm going to say this is teaching Noah and his descendants what God has to say, and may we not miss it. Because I want to, let's, yeah, we'll do with it now, and then I'll get to these things in a second. Let's go look at these two animals that God releases, that God, Noah releases. All right, what's the first animal? A raven. When the raven is released, what does a raven do? Sometimes we forget, like, what these animals do. A raven goes around and picks on dead things. The raven does not come back to the ark. Look at what the text says. He sends forth a raven and went to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. What is he doing? Is he coming back to the ark? No, he's flying around picking on every dead thing that's out there. Now a dove is not, the dove, what it is, is a nesting bird. It does not go around picking on dead things. All right, doves, and the character of it is with plants and everything else. So when he releases a dove, the dove is looking for a spot to nest or roost. And what does the dove find? Nowhere to nest or roost, because what is a raven going to do? Land on a dead animal and start picking at it. All right, the raven doesn't have to come back, but the dove does have to come back. And it's not until the dove brings back a branch that Noah is going, okay, now we can go. Noah, let's, I want to make sure you're clear on this. Sometimes we can make people in the Bible, because we buy the view of evolution, that they're ignorant dummies. All right, like no one knows what a raven is like. No one knows what a dove does. The reason why Noah's sending out a dove is because he's looking to find out the information that the dove brings back. Same thing too with a raven. What's going on out there? Yes, there's still debris and carcasses all over the place. Of course, the raven's not going to come back. But will the dove? And then when he knows these things. 
But what I want to do is, that being set aside, that was just a fun, interesting fact. That being set aside, I want to walk down here quickly through how what we see in the post-flood narrative as well as what we see in the creation narrative. Notice here, after the floodwaters had slowed down, we have a formless world covered by water. What do we have at the beginning of creation? A formless world covered by water. And what does the Spirit of God do? He hovers over the water in creation one like a dove. What does the dove do? Literally hovers over the water and returns to the ark. We have dry land and water being separated in the beginning of creation. What do we have here? Water being separated by a wind from God. Then we have in the original creation, creation and vegetation going after the water and land have been separated. What do we have in the, creation, in the Noahic event? After the water is separated, what comes back? Creation and vegetation and everything else. And we see this by literally a fresh plucked branch. Notice what the dove brings back. Not an old branch that had been hanging around, a freshly plucked branch. That would mean that trees are establishing themselves. And then at the end, after the water has subsided, the land has come forth, vegetation is all around us, the animals and creation are called to fill the earth and swarm. This is what happens in Genesis 1. This is now what's happening after the flood. It's interesting here that as we see these two going, we are supposed to think in our minds. You're supposed to, as you're reading through the narrative scripture here, going, hey, everything's new. Nothing's going to happen anymore bad. Destruction has happened. This is everything's going to be great, is how you're supposed to be reading the text at the moment. We're going to find out, is everything as great as we think it is? We'll find that out later. But right now, you're supposed to be in your mind whistling, thinking, sin has been dealt with. This family's following God. What could go wrong? All right, this is what we have to have in our minds, all right? Because this is how the text is reading this. I mean, because Noah, when he steps out, what does he do? I mean, you would go, it sounds like everything is wonderful, right? Unless you're just whistling the Andy Griffith shows thing on your way through this world, and there's going to be no problems. But we'll get to that. But before we get to that, I want you to look at this third and final point. Notice here, Verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. It's interesting here. God tells Noah to leave the ark, and what does Noah do? He leaves the ark, and you're going to go, boy, this sounds like a pattern, all right? And I'll give you the pattern that we have. When you look at the, um, the flood account, and the flood narrative, they are what they call four divine speeches. Four times where God gives direct commands, or he speaks in a way that is God is saying this. First, we see the divine speech that destruction is coming. And what do we see happened? Destruction has come. All right. Next, we see in Genesis 7, 1 through 9, go into the ark. And what does Noah do? He goes into the ark. When God tells him destruction is coming, what does Noah do? He builds an ark. Why does he build an ark? Because God told him to do it. God speaks, Noah obeys. Now we're at the third one, get out of the ark. And what does Noah do? He gets out of the ark. All right, if you're starting to see a pattern of how followers of God live, followers of God, I'll help you out here real quick. This is revolutionary. Follow God. So when God says do this, what does a follower of God do? They do this or that, depending on how you want to throw that. They do it, right? He says it and they do it. 
All right? No different than we're going to see Abraham. Remember the Abrahamic promise. You're going to have a kid. And Abraham goes, how's this happening? But what he did was he had faith in God that God was able to do what God said he was going to do. And guess what God did? He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And these are the things we need to keep in our minds. And not only that, the last, if you want to call it, divine speech that we'll look at in the upcoming weeks here is that God is going to establish a covenant with Noah. And God will speak again. And there's much to learn in that, but that's for another sermon. So I want to take a moment here. There's a couple of things I want to point out as we, in a way, wrap up the flood narrative here. The ark was back then, is now, a symbol of salvation. The ark is a symbol of salvation because it carries Noah and his family through the judgment of God on sin in this world to a new earth. The judgment of God is poured out on mankind, but because Noah is in the ark, Noah is saved. Also, I want you to point out as well the historicity of this passage. I don't know how many times we read, you would saw in this month, on this day, on this thing, over and over and over again. And then when this happens, seven days later, this is happening because it is showing the historicity of the event. This is not a one-time thing. And so as you read passage of Scripture like this, and it seems as if the author, Moses, who was directed by God to write this, it seems like they're going out of their way to tell you this happened on this day. It is because the Word of God is trying to tell you that this actually happened, and your role is to believe it. Because if we're not careful, we can treat anything in the past as fairy tale or myth. This is not a myth. The Word of God is not written to, for us to treat it like a myth. Now, there are attacks on Scripture, and one of the attacks on Scripture is that, oh, this is just a myth because every other nation around us have flood myths in their own world. And I would look and go, yeah, because it shows that it actually happened. All right? And these are the things you sit here and as you argue these things with faith, you sit there and say, you may not like that the Bible says that there was a worldwide flood. You may not want the Bible to say that. But we look at this and say, but the Bible says it. And so you can't say, well, I don't like what it says, so I'm not going to believe it, and still say you follow God. Because a follower of God takes what God says and believes it and lives accordingly. So if you're a follower of God and you see that God deals with sin very seriously, the flood is a reminder of ourselves of how God takes sin. He takes it very seriously. And so... As Noah steps out of the ark, he literally stepped off in, from a pre-flood world to a completely different world. I mean, think about that for a moment. What Noah knew about the world is totally different than the world is now. He steps onto the ark, and he knew the world at that time, steps off of the ark into our world that we have now, how we see the earth right now with all of its destruction, all of these other things, as you look around, if you've ever had a chance to go out west, it's really interesting. I don't know how many times we stopped at things when I was able to travel that with my parents, and you would read on these things, and it would say, this area was carved out by a massive water. Water came through here, and you've got to put it billions of years, right? Water came through here and reshaped this. You go to the Grand Canyon. Water came through and reshaped this. You drive a couple hundred miles north. Water came through and reshaped this. And you go over here. Water came through and reshaped this. But we don't believe in a worldwide flood. And you go, wait a minute. Everywhere we go, you're telling us how water shaped this and moved that. Or, 
As we look at the world around us and we see that there are millions of dead things laid down by water and buried all over the earth, and someone would say, well, what would you expect if there was a flood? And they would say, well, we'd expect millions of dead things laid down by water all over the earth. And guess what we find? Millions of dead things laid down by water all over the earth. And so as a believer, when we see millions of dead things laid down by water all over the earth, what should that be to us? A faith strengthener, not the reason for our faith. Our reason for our faith is because it's in God. So let me help you out with some other things. If we find a boat on Mount Ararat, what does that prove? That there's a boat on Mount Ararat. My faith does not rest on whether we find a boat on Mount Ararat or not. My faith rests because this is what God's Word says. We just need to wait for the rest of the world to catch up to it. And so when we think through these things, we have to remind ourselves that when Noah steps out into this world, it has been one that has been washed clean by the judgment waters of God. And this is the same promise for all of us who are in Christ, all of us who by faith are found in Christ. When God returns to judge the living and the dead, all of those in Christ will be saved. And then after the world is destroyed, not by water, but will be destroyed by fire, we will enter into a new heavens and a new earth. The difference between the world that Noah is stepping into and by faith one day we will step into a new world when Christ returns, is Noah stepping into a world with a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. What is the promise that Noah has not seen nor the world have seen? Genesis 3.15. What is Genesis 3.15 telling us? That one day, a descendant of Eve will come and destroy the serpent. That promise has yet to be fulfilled where we are in this text. But that promise, we will start to see, is fulfilled. That's why we celebrate these things, because reminding ourselves that one day it is coming. And so you might just say, so like, what are we to do with all of this? When we look at these texts like this, it's a reminder that what God says will happen. And so our response is, be ready. Be ready, be obedient to what God has called you to do. So I, I want to just pause for a moment and say this to you guys. We have a, every December, December 1st all the way to, to the 25th, there's a countdown or count up, however you like to count. A time for you to anticipate the Lord's return. And usually if you're like most families, you start off, if you're doing Advent readings, incredibly well, day one and day two, and then you just, stuff happens, Right? And so then you just give up, all right? Let me help you out. The mercies of God are new every morning. So even if you are literally 10 days behind, guess what you can do today? Pick it up and start reading at day 10 and start going because the goal of a believer through these Christmas times is to make sure your mind and heart are ready so when we see again and we celebrate what happens on what we are traditionally saying happened on that day. All right, we get that part. We understand what we're celebrating, what happened on Christmas Day. It awakens into us anew the love that we should have towards our Savior and the love that the Savior had towards us. That while we were yet sinners, He stepped into this world. He did not say to the world, hey, you get your act together. Literally, the text says, when the fullness of time had come, God stepped in to redeem. And that's what we should just find incredibly wonderful. 
And so when you're sitting here and you're wrestling through these little moments of everything else going on, is, does, is God really going to keep his promise? Is he not? I want to pause for a moment and I want to just draw us back to the verse that was read. By when Kurt and Pam stood up here, they read that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. So let's help you out here real quick. Joseph and Mary are natives of, not Bethlehem, Nazareth. So guess what we've got to do? We've got to get Joseph and Mary where? To Bethlehem. And so what is God's plan? Literally move the known world. And all of a sudden we pick up Luke and we hear that in the year Caesar Augustus said that out of his own greed and evil, he wants the whole world to be registered so he can tax you more. And all of this is being done by God to move two people where? To Bethlehem. And if he can do that because he promised it in Micah that it was going to take place and in time and space played it out, what does that mean about your own struggles? What does that mean about your own life as well? Does he find that insignificant? Does he decide it doesn't matter? If he's literally willing to move all of mankind, to move two people from Nazareth to Bethlehem, what does that mean about your own world? What does that mean about your own struggles? I mean, this is how the Bible speaks. He knows the hair on your head. He knows if a raven falls. He knows all of these things. What about you? He, we do not have to sit here and say, thank the Lord that he remembered Noah. Why did he remember Noah? Because he had promised it. And so we can live in our own lives with the victory that God has promised. May we not forget that this time of year. Because it became very, at times, if we're not careful, we can be struggle with things like Abraham did. And you look around and go, this does, looks like nothing's happening here. As Paul likes to say, he's as good as dead, all right? And his wife's barren. Is anything good happen out of this? All of us would have said, no, give up. But what does Abraham do? He had faith that God was going to keep his word. So may we have that same faith as well and be ready. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that by your grace we stand. Thank you that is faith in you and you alone that matter. If there's those in this room that they do not know you, may today be their day of salvation. Thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. And may we honor and glorify your name through all that is said and done. In your son's name we pray. Amen.